I play the bass, by the way. <laughs> of course, of course. Unassuming, has to be there, yeah. solid, consistent, <laughs> right? Without it, the song's a disaster. Welcome to Catalyst, the launch by NTT Data podcast. Catalyst is an ongoing discussion for digital leaders dissatisfied with the status quo and yet optimistic about what's possible through smart technology and some great people. And I am thrilled today because I'm just going to come out and say I'm a fanboy. I discovered, uh, as if I was some, you know, some uh, majestic person on the open waters discovering this, right? Certainly not the first, but I found and I was delighted to see the work of Per Christian Stovland, who's a generative artist hailing from Oslo, Norway, who has really taken the art world by, I would say, by storm this year with an ambitious series that he calls The Harvest. He's joining Catalyst to talk about the purposeful blending of generative art, digital rights via NFTs, and the physical realms of artwork and how he and artists like himself are truly trailblazing brand new technology-based future for what is perhaps humanity's most ancient and noble occupation. And with all that, we want to welcome to the Catalyst podcast, artist and entrepreneur, Per Christian Stovlin. Per Christian, how are you doing today, man? Fine, thank you. And thank you for having me here. It's an honor. No, thank you. So I came out hot, right? I'm coming out hot. My cards are on the table. And it, it really is a thrill for me to have you on the podcast. And by the way, me, this is Clinton Bonner. While Chris and Gina will, will remain as hosts, I also will be hosting some of these. So sometimes I'll be on with Chris and Gina. Sometimes I'll be the solo, the solo host. Sometimes I'll have co-hosts. And again, today back to, uh, back to the important person here with Pear Christian. So as you know, uh, Pear, I'm a, I'm a, Big, big fan of your work. I saw it out on Twitter. And before I even knew that it was a form of generative art, my brain and my heart screamed to me, I like that. Like it was super cool to see what you were doing. So we're going to dive into the technologies and the platforms that power all this. But I also want to know, like from, from your perspective as an artist, could you lay out for us, for the audience, generative art? What does it mean for you? How do you define that? And maybe what are some misconceptions out there that maybe the mainstream audience would, would love to know about? Well, first of all, thank you for those kind words. I'm, I'm honored. Uh, I don't know what to say, but thank you. Well, what is generative art? It's just a, another discipline of art, I would say. But the, the key thing about generative art is I am a programmer and I kind of code an algorithm, a, a tight, a coupled algorithm which can, each time I ask it to generate an image, it generates an image with a set of bounds, which I have programmed it to have, and a lot of randomization. And my job as an, a generative artist is to try and create or, or tweak this algorithm to create a set of generative artworks that kind of fit together in a series and you can see belong together, but has a lot of variation uh, depending on the randomness I would give to this algorithm. In a nutshell, it's basically you create uh, a generative artist creates an algorithm that generates visual outputs, a new visual output every time you ask it, and it is randomly generated, but with a set of uh, boundaries that I give it. It's pretty fascinating, right? It's this. It's this. I hate to say, I think the word, you know, the, the manipulation of the possibilities, right? And then, and then the tinkering, and I think the patience of 
tinkering little bit by little bit and, and probably just working through the edges until, until something probably captivates you. And you say, well, I, I, even though you have a series, even though you have a, a vision of what, and we'll talk about the harvest in a second, of what the whole series looks like, I would imagine there are still these moments when you press a button one way or the other, you give a command one, one way or the other, and it hits you. Is there a feeling when you're like, ooh, that's it, and you want to springboard forward? Take us through that emotion when, you, when you're literally like in the lab, if you will, just manipulating this code to, to generate opportunities. Yeah, it's, it's definitely an iterative process. And a lot, of the, a lot of my previous work comes from just playing around and kind of building on what you have, taking it a different direction, working on that iteratively, and then maybe going back to the stem and kind of working in this way. And then... Sometimes it just something pops up, but in other cases you can have a, uh, you can be inspired by something that is not related. I mean, it could be uh, anything outside, and you just get an idea of how how you could write some code to try and emulate something you were inspired by, and you can work on that. But still, that will become an iterative process because you're never done as soon as you tested something. And uh, for me, at least Harvest, uh, there was one very d- distinct point I, c- I can remember. It was uh, yeah. Last, after summer last year, I was working on this landscape algorithm, which is, the harvest is a big part of. Whilst I was working on this, uh, I was testing with just one beam. And at that mo- moment, that, I don't know what got me to test that, but I was thinking, I, what would it look like if I had a beam come down and hit this? And I had a few ideas and I had to iterate uh, over a couple of uh, evenings to get to that one image, which I still have stored somewhere, which got me thinking, this is what I'm going to work on. And, and that got me in a more, instead of just testing iteratively, that was kind of a pivot point where I started working with a, a goal in mind. It's beautiful. And I think I've seen the like, Harvest Zero. I think I've seen that out on Twitter. If it's a black and white one that had the one beam. And, and again, these are striking pieces. And we'll, we'll try and in an audio sense, describe them. But a couple of things that came up for me there. I want to go back for a second. I want to understand the freedom that generative provides you versus physical when it comes to the attempts you want to take. But let's, let's put that aside for a second. I think when, even when I was researching you, you know, I kept saying the words like generative AI and generative, like, hey, the role of AI. And you were like, hey, not really. You know, not really. So I think there's a misconception out there as well that generative equals AI. And I'd love for you to kind of clarify that for the audience too, because I do believe that is a, a fairly, you know, wide misconception that those two things go together and kind of always go together. Right, right. I see. That's, that's a good point. And I can see how they can be conflated, but you could always mix these two disciplines. But let's say, keep them separate. You could say a generative artist would write its own program. I mean, you could do, you could, of course, Google help for, you know, writing your own script, but basically you're writing your own script and what is generating is is a finished algorithm, right? It has no, there's no artificial intelligence driving it. It's just, it's a procedural process. You have a code, it works through all the lines of code and it ends up with a visual output. AI on the other side is, when you're working as an AI artist, what you I would say you actually are as, an, as a, a prompt artist. I mean, you develop your own way to write a prompt for a, an artificial intelligence and it creates some output back to you. So think of it more like a big brain you're asking to create an image for you, whilst the artistry in that lies in how you prompt this big brain. But in generative art, you're creating your own very small brain 
only able to create this output that you define. The AI brain could kind of create anything. Your program can just create what you want it to create. Right. Certainly a bit more, a lot more focused in the parameters that were in this case, given by the creator of the algorithm, right? And this, and for the harvest, that, that being you. And I understand the broadness of what, what AI could go do if it was like, okay, we'll just go explore in, in all directions, right? Right. <laughs> so exactly. Very, very interesting. Not even just nuance, but really good distinction that I think people should really get around and understand. So one of the things that I wanted to ask about too, I love origin stories in general, like uh, people who listen to the pod will hear me say that when I was 12 years old, my dad opened a, a card and comic book store. So the comic book origin, I'm always a sucker for, how did things get going? And specifically for you, not just about the harvest, pre-harvest, were you, would you consider that you were a programmer first? Were you an artist first? Did they happen in parallel throughout your life? So what's the, the chicken or egg story for, for you, Pear? Well, I would say up until, uh, I guess, high school, I was kind of, there was, I was going to do some academic stuff. My father is a civil engineer and doctor of philosophy and uh, water development and sanitation. So uh, that has kind of, uh, I looked up to him. I, I had to get a real education, if you see what I mean. But during high school, I started I got into, got into music in a band and kind of it was, you know, black metal had a long hair, much longer than now at least. <laughs> I started kind of realizing that this wasn't something I could live off of when I was getting into my adulthood. But what the good thing the music or the band I played in did for me was that we created a couple of CDs and I had somebody had to design the covers and that's how I got into sure. graphic design. Uh, so I went to graphic design school. And so I would say at this point, I did have experience with computers, but that was mostly gaming, you know, in the 90s. But when I was done with graphic design school, actually through a small bet with a friend of mine, I ended up creating a website for their uh, their band. To create that website, I had to learn, this was just early in the internet age, right? So I got into Flash, which was kind of a program, it was quite oh, yeah. hot at that point, yeah. Unicorns flashing on the screen, very MySpace, a bit flash out there for folks who just don't know yet or, or just forgot about it, right? Very myspace times, right? Where in MySpace, you might Definitely. have like glowing unicorns coming across the stage and little rotating uh, yeah. you know, doodads and, and very colorful and very um, free, I would call flash, right? In some ways. Exactly. And, but it, what it did also do, because it matured over time and became its own language uh, or a language in its own right. And the fascinating thing, it was for me as a designer, it was an easy way to get into what programming was. You could start with, you know, real small bits of code. And uh, I've always been, you know, logical, technical guy. So uh, I was really intrigued about how I could just write things and it would just get things to move and respond. And uh, that's got me into, you know, hardcore coding. And that's basically what my career is built on after that. So that combina combination of coding and design helped let me into the, you know, design and ad agencies, which I, I probably have 10 years there before I kind of got tired about the consuming part of that. Yeah, I got tired of, you know, adding to consumption by working at ad agencies. So we... I and a few uh, friends of mine started up Void, which is a uh, you know alternative design studio. You know, it's it's a bit bit of a cliche now, but you, we say that we work in the, at the intersection of art, uh, technology, design, and architecture, and create a lot of uh, installations, interactive installations, permanent sonography, and stuff like that. And so the NFT part of me is uh, something I started a couple of years ago. And, you know, generative art has been part of my life since I started with Flash because I did a lot of generative art then. But 
it kind of once you get older life happens uh, you know you get children and you don't have that same amount of time but when i realized nfts became a thing i said this was i used to do this why don't i just uh, give it a go and uh, i got really you know sucked into into it it was great fun and it was kind of a refreshing a new refreshing part in my life uh, together with the kind of the serious stuff that happens in void and uh, yeah two years later here we are it's super cool because I ask, hey, was it code or was it art? And you go, yeah, it was a rock band, right? So, <laughs> so that's, which is great. And then, and then back to the Harvest again, which is this really wonderful, I would say provocative in a good way series. You know, you talked about it being landscapes and a lot of topography. So again, just trying to paint the visual picture for folks that are out there. These sometimes sharp, sometimes hilly, sometimes very mountainous and peaky landscapes with these vertical beams of, of which look like light, just careening into the, into what you would think is the earth or, or some Martian territory. And then these splatter effects of color and destination of, of these beautiful visuals. Uh, that's how I, I'd put it into a nutshell. And it's really just awe-inspiring stuff. So you're tinkering, you get, you get to zero, you get that feeling of, I've got something, okay, I've got something special here. What is it? Because you're fired up, right? You're like, ooh, I got something. And like you said earlier, now you're tinkering heavily. You, you kind of got back into it. You had the great origin with Flash. So you already knew what, you were already in generative to say, I can tinker rapidly. I can experiment at low cost. I don't got to get on canvas and oil, oil, and that costs money and that canvas costs money. And I got to cover it back over and it's going to take me three days. So you can experiment extremely rapidly in, in this in this format. What was the acceleration from zero through, let's say, the first few of, of this, the series in Harvest? Well, uh, first of all, I'm not, uh, just to clarify, I mean, when we're talking about the Harvest Zero, are you referring to the first mint of the series? Good question. So what I saw on Twitter, I think Harvest number zero was not minted from what I, what I read. No. So, okay, right. So, so let, let me just explain that. So when I create this algorithm, it has to live on the blockchain to be an NFT, right? So what I do mm -hmm. is that before the sale opens for the series, I collaborated with Artblocks, which is a platform. They deliver a, a, you know, a system for uploading it to the blockchain and then doing all the, the auction uh, handling and stuff like that. So I get into the platform, I upload my code onto the blockchain, and to be sure that everything works as it should, uh, the artists mints the first one, and that is what is called the Mint Zero. And that is also what is used as the kind of profile picture for that series. So if you go to OpenSea, which is a, a secondary market where you can buy this, uh, you would see kind of uh, the, the Mint Zero to be the profile picture. This is also um, an NFT which I own. I own the first one. I have not sold it. Probably won't ever because... It has an, uh, a value it's of It's your baby. Yeah, yeah, right. It's right. your baby. Definitely. <laughs> it's yours. I, but, I get it. But after that, so when I upload it, I also have to say how many iterations this algorithm will accept, which is handled mm. by the blockchain, right? So when this is minted, this happened a week or two before it was actually going out for sale. And then there was some promotion and the sale day came. What happens then is that people can just go, can go to this platform, see that it's available, and can just purchase it there. And each time one purchases it, a new generative token is generated, and that person owns this token, right? So the rest, the 399 were sold out in that Dutch auction. So that all those were generated probably within a window of 20 to 30 minutes. 
Oh, wow. Okay, that's so crazy. When I'm talking about the first uh, kind of image, when I realized that I had something when it came to harvest, yeah. that was an image I generated probably uh, around August last year, which was on my computer. And it's just now I have no way of generating an exact copy of it le- uh, anymore. So I have the PNG file, low resolution PNG file. And that's everything I have from that. But I still have it, if you see what I mean. I could never generate it again. So it has value for me uh, too. Still, so uh, yeah, you know. So let's let's dive a little bit deeper into that into that technology stack. So the you know, we talked about you had shared earlier OpenSea, and the best way I, I look at that, and correct me, you know, guide me if I'm a little bit uh, misguided here. Sure. I would look at that as that's the NFT marketplace, right? In, in a lay term. So OpenSea is it OpenSea.com or OpenSea? OpenSea.io, I guess. I think it is. And yeah. people can go there and just type in the harvest or per Christian, and you'll see your. I don't know if you call it a gallery, but you'll see the work and then see it's out there and on the on OpenSea and then the individual pieces. So did you say there are 399 total or 400 if it includes? There's 400 total, including the one I minted first. Gotcha, gotcha. Cool. So there's 400 in total. And then there was a first auction. Away they go. Now at this point, people can buy and sell them as, as just something you could own digitally as an NFT. And But that's still happening on NFT and that is powered by... Uh, Ethereum purchases is that correct? Right. So, in some way, you can think of it. Think of the blockchain as one big giant database. You know, you have um, currency stored there, and but you can also have applications and data stored there too. It costs money to trans- to store it, but once you've stored it, it's it's there. So that's what happens with the code. It actually gets stored on the blockchain, and uh, that's kind of your tracker of who owns what, right? So, and what OpenSea does, they don't own the blockchain in any way. They right. they use the blockchain as their database for the for the data. So it scrapes the whole blockchain and displays all the NFTs that are available. If you own this, you can put it out. You can list it for sale. Or you can, you know, there's people discussing it over DMs and then they agree to just transact. Uh, I mean, there's different ways of selling these, but you can have a view of everything that's available on OpenSea in the same way as you can when you're purchasing uh, stocks, for example, at, at the stock exchange. It's a simplistic comparison, but there's there's a lot of no, economic... Uh, that's effective, though, because, and again, where generative art in general, I think, again, makes it... Simpler is not the right term because it undersells it, but allows for more experimentation more rapidly, I, I think is, is a fair way to look at it. Again, versus physical oil or, or something to, to canvas. The OpenSea platform also allows for, and the fact that it's on blockchain and, and, and the, the irrefutable ledger that comes with it, it allows for, think about it versus a, a physical piece of art like that is only a physical piece where you may have to go to a certain gallery over in England and talk to a very, very small pool of humans who have access to that thing. And who knows, have some, have some discussions about, about potentially, and then maybe going to a, was it Lloyd's, I think, right? The auction house going to an auction in that way, very, very exclusive versus this is much more democratized, mainly because of the technology by its nature is a democratized platform. Uh, that's uh, very, um, I agree with everything you said. That's how I view it too. So one of the other ways we just, I just mentioned physical prints. And one of the things that I thought was just say, like call it outstanding was that for the owner of the NFT, that you offer the ability to get a, I think, again, correct me if I'm wrong, a single print done. And you have a way to control the printing process to, I would say, enhance or or solidify the integrity that this is in fact 
the prints you can get from the NFT ownership. And I think you actually sign all the ones uh, yourself as well as part of it. So had you seen that been done before by different artists? Was that something borrowed or was that like an added way? Because the physical pieces are, they're gorgeous, right? You, you, you want them on your wall. Uh, you don't want them just as a, as a piece of digital life, but printed, they're absolutely gorgeous. So where does that idea come from? Is that borrowed or something new that you threw into the mix? Well, I knew when I started this that I wanted to have the ability to print because I come from the, you know, when I went to design school, it was print and I've been digital basically all my career. So it was, this was an opportunity to go back to print. So this series, I wanted to do print. So I did a lot of research on how to do that in the best way. And I found different approaches to how to do it. So there, the, I cannot say that this is my idea, but the idea of uh, wanting to get to uh, give an exclusive print that was that was uh, what I wanted to do. So uh, the solution I came up with was is a kind of a mix of some uh, different ways to do it. But this was the way I wanted to do it. So how you do it is that you have to prove your ownership of the NFT when you order it, and uh, depending on what size you want, I would generate yeah. one a high res image, and I work uh, tightly with a print shop in downtown Oslo to create these prints and I sign it. I also deliver a certificate of authenticity. So it kind of has the same authority as any print from an, a regular, you know, traditional artist would have. Yeah. And then, yeah, sign them and ship them off. And once I've done that for one of that NFT, that NFT can't be redeemed again afterwards. Let me poke at that for a second, right? So let's say I was lucky enough to, to own one of your pieces. And of course, if I'm going to own the, the NFT, then I'm going to pony up and get, get the physical piece and I'm get the biggest one I possibly could get that fits on my walls appropriately. Um, that, that's just me. <laughs> so after there's a print, what happens if, uh, let's say then I want to sell my NFT. Let's say it's 10 years later. I sell the NFT rights. The new owner, are they not able to go get a print? Is like, okay, well, hey, that one print is the print. So what I'm saying is that you, will, you, you won't be able to get a new signed print with a certificate of authenticity. I mean, when people own the NFT, if they would like to generate their, their high resolution from that algorithm themselves and print it, I mean, it's up to them. I'm sure. just honored if they want to do that. But if right. you want to have a signed version of that NFT with a certificate of authenticity, that can only happen once. So... What I want to do is also, you know, create some exclusivity in some kind of way. It might backfire 10 years down the road. I don't know. But this is kind of how I, I want to do it now. And w what you would have to do if you want to buy a piece because you want an authentic signed print, there is on my webpage, which is perkwork.art, P-E-R-K-W-E-R-K dot A-R-T. Uh, you can go and see there's a list from the sign which prints have been alre have already been signed and are not available to be redeemed for a print though. That's how I've chosen to do it now. And that list is updated as soon as I get in order. Interesting. It's interesting that, um, you know, cause I know there's an added expense to the print, but, but again, for me, it's like, if you're going to, if you're going to own the piece, then go get the print, right? Because, a be and very, very much because of the exclusivity around it too. And of course that for me, it is a piece of art and I, I want to physically be around it and see it in my living room or wherever I want to hang it. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Uh, that, at least for me, I, I, as soon as it becomes physical, it has another dimension. But you, you can also, I mean, Harvest has a kind of a unique animation when it generates. So when you, every time you see it, it generates to kind of build the image so you can see it. And that animation is something you can't get on print, of course. So there's a drawback on having a print too, but I would say uh, the ups on the print is also quite amazing. And the, the 
flexibility of the artwork itself to live in both realms um, very successfully points to the the overall successfulness and how it speaks to people. Because you put them out on Twitter and others put out on Twitter, they show the animation, they show the progress of a of looking at a, a harvest piece coming to life. And, and those are something as well. And I know that you've been on a bit of a, a whirlwind tour. I believe, I know New York. I know you you were in New York recently. I think you were in Tokyo, if I'm following, you know, the bouncing ball or going there soon. The artwork was, I, I wasn't able to go there, but my artwork was, yeah. So what are the galleries do with it? Is it more the digital where they're doing the builds and showing it? Is it more the stills? Is it mixed media? How are galleries taking this and then representing it to the world for folks that walk through physical doors? Well, it it depends a lot on the gallery. Uh, So there was one showing in New York, which I was at, which was more like a, it was in the basement. It was more like a club feeling to it. And uh, it was dark and there was a lot of uh, monitors kind of spread out over the room. Mm. It showed a few different of my works, some animated and some just stills, but it was on screens. The same in Tokyo, it was more like a think of screens hanging as a physical frame would and uh, the image would just be displayed there. And then finally, I had its uh, exhibition uh, just last month in London where you had one physical piece that was framed. That was actually a gallery, the the disruptive gallery that that they um, bought up quite a few high value NFTs and uh, acquired the prints for these. That was very much a physical uh, uh, gallery an exhibition, whilst also kind of uh, having some digital aspect to it, though. But yeah, there was a lot of physical there. So yeah, it depends a lot about the gallery. So I don't know. I don't know if you've been asked this, or if it's like, no, I won't say, but I'll ask anyway. So there's 400 pieces. Is there one for you that you're like, you know, zero is your baby, and we get that. That's the first minted. Is there a piece within the 400 or a style even to give it a little more broadness that you personally find the most pleasing? It, it is actually a very hard question to answer. It's a bit like if you have more than one child and you want to say which one's your favorite, it, it, it's hard to kind of define one. Maybe sure, you do sure. have but maybe that, do. But that's on the sur- <laughs> that's on the surface. What you tell your wife is <laughs> yeah, yeah. this kid picks their fair stuff enough. up. This one's this one's lazy. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Well, to be honest, uh, I think each palette has been. I mean, uh, I spent a couple a couple of months on palettes, so I mean, each of them has grown on me. But I would say there's one piece that has kind of for different reasons popped uh, out as uh, quite unique, and that's number one one two, which has this one big majestic beam coming down and it is in black and white and it's also the one that's had the highest sale though but it's also one of three that has one single beam everyone all the others have a lot and this is back to the generative art part this is where it's quite rare to just have one beam you can see it there was just there were only generated three of them in a series of 400 so that's less than one percent but that's one of the edge cases of the parameter windows that I define when we cre- uh, create this. And a lot, of the, a lot of the work in generative art is that part there. You can have an algorithm, which is, I haven't been working that much on the drawing part of it, but it, what I would say 60 to 70% of the time I've spent has been going to finding the edge cases and narrowing that window so you know that each time, because once you've put that uh, algorithm on the blockchain, you have no control of how the result would be. So when they click, when you purchase a mint from the harvest, when you're auctioning first-hand sale, people don't know what they're going to buy. What they're going to buy. What? Yeah, yeah, I didn't realize they're they're buying 
kind of blindly and, and that they have to just see what was delivered. What they can see, though, is that the, the week before when this was announced, there was an auction on uh, Artbox. People can go in there and hit the generate new one, generate new as many yeah. times as they want. And they can see the actual algorithm in action so they can get a feeling of what you're going to get. So if you sit there for 24 hours and just press that button and save each image, you you can get quite a... Your data set, right? Yeah, you can see what you can get. So in that way, you're not actually buying blind. And that's part of, I think, from uh, the way when I go and buy art, because that feeling of not knowing what you're going to get is uh, really exhilarating. There there have been times where I have sold the one I bought uh, at an auction and buying from the same series, but maybe in a different palette. That has happened, but there is some something special about not knowing what you're going to buy and then and just seeing it generate when you've bought it. Did not know that. So glad we got to that because that that's a really cool wrinkle. And that's such a, from the physical world, huge departure from, from the physical auction of sitting there and being like, okay, I know exactly what that is. Uh, and the excitement of having to wait to see it generate. That's a really intriguing piece that I just had no idea. And I, I bet lots of folks didn't either. So I'm glad, glad we kind of arrived to that. Yeah. For me, this is, this is natural for me. So I didn't think of right, right. saying I'm it. Go, this I'm, is, I'm this glad we blow my mind. Like, <laughs> that's so cool. Love, love all that. But you can also then imagine how, uh, how nerve wracking it can be for an yes. artist when the sale goes out, because I have one admission though, about this set of, of the harvest is that there's been one bug that has tormented me throughout last mm. uh, when I started this project in yeah around summer last year, and uh, it was released in January. So that whole time, there's been one bug that's been tormenting me all the way. And each time it popped up, it was a result of an edge case. So I had to kind of trim that edge case, find a better way, and so it popped up you no know, less and less over time, right? But you can never prove a negative, so I could never be a hundred percent sure that it would never pop up. But uh, I've probably iterated a thousand, uh, ten thousand probably iterations after the last time I got that bug and never saw it. So I was quite confident that it would pop up. But yeah, I was nervous about that little small bug. I mentioned my dad owning a card comic book store earlier. So I've collected physical cards for quite a while, um, you know, on and off again. And, and right before COVID and through COVID, the physical card world, cardboard cards got extremely like, overly hot, just crazy, crazy hot. And with that, you know, the, the bug piece is actually kind of fascinating because in the cardboard world, they would call it an error. Yeah. Right. That's, yeah. An, that's an error card. And one of the consequences of error cards in the physical cardboard world is they usually worth a lot of money. Yeah. Like those are the ones that actually are like, oh, a Dale Murphy reverse negative. If folks know the upper deck Dale Murphy, that's the one you want to chase because there's only so many of them. So I do wonder if there's any parallels there or you're like, I'm trying to get rid of all those, but from a collector's perspective, might they see it as an error card and there might be a bit more, uh, might be a bit more value to it. I would guess that that was kind of my small consolation if it popped up. Hopefully it would only pop up once and maybe it would be right. uh, something I, like you are mentioning because I was into Magic the Gathering in the 90s sure. when I was a kid. So I know exactly what you mean. There were a few error yeah. cards which were, you know, rare and cool. So I, yeah, I definitely, if it would have been fun to see if that had popped up. I'm sure if it just had been one, it would probably have uh, a higher value. I don't know. Um, it's hard to speculate in how you, you know, value art, but yeah. Right. Big possibility. Sure. Well, I'm glad we're talking about the art world now too, because I do want to ask, you know, like you've been at this for a while and doing, di- doing different projects, certainly before the harvest as well. 
you know, I've seen some of your other interviews where you almost share, I would say, pangs of guilt <laughs> that your work got the commercial wave and catch that that it caught fire and that it's really being appreciated commercially as this beautiful artwork. And it was, and I've heard some of your interviews where you're like, yeah, there's so many other people that you you consider colleagues or peers and just great artists that for whatever reason, theirs have maybe that's not caught yet. So are there other artists or other styles out there since this is a platform where some folks will hear it that you're like, you know what? I love these people too. Like they, they deserve your eyes also. Go, go check out some of their, their artwork because they're, they're pushing boundaries also. Uh, there are too many. I mean, I would feel bad for not mentioning others when I mention a few, but the, I would say one, one thing that was interesting about getting into the NFT uh, world is that I realized quite quickly I had to be on Twitter. And to be honest, I despised social media and Twitter. And I'm not that kind of, a, uh, you know, not a social media guy. I can lurk, but I, I don't engage too much. <laughs> but uh, I realized that Twitter was important in this community because there's a lot of, you need to connect in order to kind of be part of that world. And so I saw the value of Twitter through this. And I've this is where I've kind of joined uh, a lot of connections and a lot of great, seen a lot of great artists. So I mean, if you find me on Twitter, go to the people I follow. I would say there's a lot of right. great artists there, at least. Start there, maybe, and then see what see uh, what pops up. There's a, The community is really helping each other out to kind of spread the word. There's a lot of good energy, a lot of banner, bad energy, too, and scammers and stuff like that. But you find people that are, you know, really legit and, you know, kind, talented, good people. It's at perkwork, P-E-R-K-W-E-R-K underscore is uh, is where you could you could follow Per Christian and see all of his stuff, but also the folks that he's retweeting and the folks that he's following within the generative community, the artist community. And for me, I mean, I wasn't following you per se, but I was following somebody mm. who was following somebody exactly. who said, "Ooh, that's pretty." Yeah, <laughs> yeah I yeah. like that. So I want to end here with you, Per. All right, the harvest, big success, at least in my my point of view, like commercial, in and I mean that in a good way. Like the the population seemed to really love it. People are struck by it. They're, they they really enjoy the artwork and that that's something. And I'd imagine you being a, a designer and a coder that you're never going to, you're not stopping and saying, okay, that's it. So have you already begun next trials and next ideas of what a, what a next series might be? Or are you taking a bit of a break from, from that process? Well, the last couple of months have been a lot about managing the aftermath of uh, the harvest release. So there's been a lot of prints because that's some manual work I have to do. And sure. But at the same time, I have been working. Uh, there's a two, three projects I'm working at the moment. A smaller project, not not the size of the harvest, but uh, it will be released in the coming months. I don't have enough information to to reveal anything yet, but yeah, I'm working on stuff, and uh, I already have started the idea of of uh, maybe a new series in the in the the same vein of the harvest, then maybe for release in the beginning of next year or something like that. No promises, but that's kind of the that's where I'm at at the moment. And but I also have to. I have to manage the uh, my my life at Void because a lot of my identity is part of the Void, the, the design uh, studio which I started uh, started up with a couple of friends of mine about eight years ago, and which has been my baby for a long time. Yeah, so I, I'm still kind of uh, juggling that part of my my practice too. So I will, I will keep going on with both. And um, my solo art practice is something that I am interested in sustaining over a long period of time. And uh, you'll see more from me. But so I'm taking everything step by step. I like to plan my uh, my events uh, going uh, in the future. But yeah, there's definitely definitely coming more. 
Per, thank you so, so much. We already said, hey, out on Twitter, Perk Work, P-E-R-K-W-E-R-K underscore Open C-I-O. Just go there and just kind of search The Harvest by Per Christian Stoveland. You will find it there. And go check out Void.as as well. There's just this tremendous work that, again, blending the physical and, and art space to bring concepts and bring what is almost like live art to physical buildings and give them presence. Really, really cool stuff that you you and your team are doing at Void as well. So, Pear, thank you so much for joining us. And we'll, uh, I'll, I'll be following and uh, hope to one day uh, call one of those NFTs and, and those prints, prints the mind. But until that day, I'll, I'll keep watching and keep admiring what you got going. Thank you so much. And thank you for the kind words. And it's been an honor and fun to chat. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Thank you. <laughs>